We've been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, welcome back. Steve with Suspidel coming at you with Eduardo Ordonez once again on a part two of our Carlism video. Uh, it was such a good big hit on the first one, and some questions came in that we decided to bring him back to answer them and another topic afterwards. So, Eduardo, thank you for coming in. Appreciate your time. Steve, good evening. Thank you very much for having me again. My pleasure. Um, very excited to spend this time with you answering uh, some of those questions and uh, going about uh, whatever else uh, Carlisen may, may bring to us tonight. <laughs> uh, very good. So let's go ahead and jump into the questions that we found that uh, you could answer for the uh, viewers out there. So number one, Absolutely. what bibliography do you recommend that is in English from an introductory book to historical books on the topic? Okay. Um, Yes, probably this one, this this was the most popular question. Uh, several people uh, address uh, uh, these questions uh, and trying to provide uh, some uh, insights about, you know, what would be a good uh, good books in English that will treat this topic. Um, unfortunately, we don't have that much published in English um, as concerned. I'm strictly talking about Carlism. However, I have... Um, Two books here that I really recommend to kind of like as an introduction to the to the movement. First one I will go with this one um, is about the twelve month campaign with General Sumalakaregi, and it talks about the first Carlist War, eighteen thirty four, um, all the way to um, eighteen forty forty one, and you know that was that was called the War of the Seven Years. It was brutal, very cruel, and um, we have this English lord. Um, Charles F. Henningsen, that actually was sent there, um, commissioned by Lord Elliot from England, with the purpose to understand what was going on at that time in Spain and how both sides were so cruel in battle. Um, actually, it's recorded that uh, there were episodes um, of cannibalism in this in this um, in this world, which is not um, hard to imagine because. This war last too many years, and also there was a famine going on. What it happened, especially during the winter time, and as a result of that, uh, there were all sorts of uh, cruel stuff going on and, and massive killings and shootings and on both sides. So Charles F. Hennison was sent there to make the, their observations and um, bring them back to England, because England always wanted to have a, a kind of like a saying. On, on these conflicts and uh, and this author was relates very well how those years were uh, especially in the northern uh, portion of Spain the Basque country and uh, the Basque provinces and Navarra which is actually where I come from and um, you know it, it, it talks very well describes very well how that Catholic society lived um, 
all the way up to the war and, and during the war. So that's the first book. You can find it in Amazon. Probably it may change the the first page, maybe a little bit different, uh, different edition, but it's available. So um, you can get it there. And then the other one that probably you guys, both you and, and, and the audience in general will be more acquainted here in, in North America is with this book, The Last Crusade by Warren Carroll. Uh, it's a very great overview of the 1936 Spanish Crusade. Um, you know, it touches uh, Carlism um, in a very, I would say, thoughtful way. Um, it's not about Carlism, but it is, it is, it obviously you, you treat this word, you have to talk about Carlism. So it says very good, um, it has very good insights and uh, it's very ac accurate. So I will highly recommend this book too. Now, this is what I have in English. In addition of this, you can find uh, any PDF document, articles uh, from Mr. Frederick Wilhelmsen, uh, rest in peace his soul, and his daughter, Alexandra Wilhelmsen. Uh, both have, wrote in, uh, have written extensively about Carlism. The first one is more of a uh, in a philosophical way, more about politics, philosophy, and how Carlism fits into those categories. And, the, and his daughter, Alexandra, more from an historical perspective. What Carlism accomplished, how were the wars, uh, who were the main uh, characters, uh, their lives, their lifestyles, uh, etc. How was society over there? So there is more like an anthropolog anthropological uh, approach to the movement. Uh, and those are in English and you can find them in Google. Uh, you can do a Google search and they will pop up right away. Uh, so th that's that in English. Now, if you are a little bit knowledgeable about the Spanish, I will recommend this book that I have here, La Cruz Sangrienta, uh, The Bloody Cross, which is the adventures of uh, Cura Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz Apaisaren. We talk about him in the first uh, podcast. And uh, like the first book that I show you is the same re relation of all the, what's going on in the third Carlist War, uh, not the first one, uh, but by the priest but his adventures, how he created this army, how he was living the faith, uh, him and his troops, uh, all the ambushes that they did to the liberals, how bad they were the liberals. It's very interesting. I, I like it. And it's written in a very Spanish, uh, I mean, very easy Spanish. So it's not complicated. Yes, it's your level is kind of like basic. And then finally, I will recommend this book. This is actually a Carlism, uh, the closest concept to a Carlism encyclopedia. It has many pictures, and just for the audiovisual, I mean, for the visual aspect to it, it's worthwhile to have it. Uh, I don't know if you can see it from here, but, uh, you know, it has, like, a lot of pictures along with the timeline of Carlism. So I really recommend uh, this book, too, even if you don't know Spanish, because it's entertaining. So that's uh, what I have as far as books. All right. Uh, what is the name of the flag and the meaning behind it. Okay, okay. Uh, well, as you can see from my background, uh, that's the Carlist flag. Um, used to be the flag of Spain, and the name is, is the Cross of Burgundy, or San Andrew's Cross, okay? It comes from the Burgundy Duchy, uh, which was what we call now Belgium, the country. And the Carlist flag, uh, you know, this flag was the official flag, battle flag, army, and navy flag of the Kingdom of Spain from the early 16th century up to the mid-1800s, by the end of the First Carlist War. Uh, 
I would say 18, yeah, 1840. And um, it comes from uh, King Philip I. He was the first Habsburg uh, to rule in Spain. Uh, he, he married with uh, Joan of Castile. And King Philip, uh, he was named the handsome. And this king uh, inherited the, the, the coat of arms of, uh, with the cross of Burgundy from his mother. Uh, Mary of Burgundy. So that's where it all come. And, uh, and like I said, the, the, the Carlists just adopt this flag because this is the flag that best represents the, the characteristics of traditional monarchy and the traditional Spain. God, fatherland, charter rights, and king. So are New Mexico, Alabama, Florida, is that resemblance of it? Was there... Uh, it was that accidental or was that on purpose? I, I, I want to believe that it was intentional. And I think it's intentional in the sense that it's very similar. I just, it's almost the same. I think that in the case of Alabama, they or, or uh, both of Florida, may, they may not have the spikes on the on the on the X, uh -huh. uh, but it's the same. I mean, it's like red was, uh, over a white uh, background. And as far as I know, it was done on purpose in remembrance of the of the Spanish legacy these territories inherit. Did, did you mention the spikes? The spikes have any kind of symbolism? Uh, not that not I really. know of. Not that yeah. I know of. I think that it just, it just, for some reason, it just came like that in the in the cross of San Andrew okay. that, that was taken for the Duque of Burgundy and that's that's the at least as far as I know. Okay. Uh, why isn't Carlism an ideology? Nah, that's that's the, this question is loaded. <laughs> this question is loaded. Yes. Um, well, first I think that we have to clarify a couple of concepts in order to address the question. First, we we have to say what is philosophy. Well, we know philosophy is the the love of wisdom. You know, the the, the search of uh, of truth and wisdom. So. An ideology pretend to be a philosophy of life, okay? But in reality, it's a false philosophy. Why? Because an ideology is a deformation of reality based on preconceived design of reality. That's what ideolo ideologies do. You know, they pick two or three ideas that are true. And they try to funnel all reality through these ideas. Therefore, there are many instances in life where uh, reality is not, is not going to conform to those tenets or those principles of the ideology. So what they do is they make, they make up for it. You know, they, they, they invent and, and create a justification for, uh, hence, it's not truth. It's, it's not based on truth, right? Uh, and that's what happened with liberalism. You know, liberalism is the mother of all the ideologies. And these ideologies, they just, uh, it's kind of like a divide and conquer. They divide people into believing different parts of life, but none of them are fully truth, truthful. Okay. So here we can include anything from the left to the right. Uh, from communism, socialism, fascism, um, uh, na uh, national socialism, all the ideologies, they, they, that's, they aim to be an answer to all the questions of life. They give you that cosmovision of life. And Carlism rejects them all because it rejects liberalism. Um, so it, I, I will have to make um, a point here. Also to democracy, 
But when democracy is understood not as a form of government, but as the base of any government, then is when democracy becomes an ideology. Uh, because, you know, what it pretends is that truth and authority come from the will of the people. And we know, Catholics, that that is not true. It comes from Jesus Christ, our Lord, both. He is the truth, the life, and the way, and authority come from God, not from the people. The people can recognize or deny that authority, but it's not for them to give. Okay, so why isn't monarchy a tyranny? Well, you know, because tyranny is the distortion of monarchy, as it is the distortion of any kind of government. You know, it can be the tyranny of one, let's say, let's think in Stalin, uh, Caligula, Nero, Henry VIII, for example, or the tyranny of many, or a few. Let's think, for example, in the National French uh, Assembly. Carlisen believes that traditional Catholic monarchy is not only the best government system, but the most difficult to break it down and to make it degenerate into tyranny. Why? Because of the two main laws that rule it, which are the legitimacy of exercise and the legitimacy of origin. Those two laws ensure that the king and the, and the system is going to be um, um, you know, respectful of the church in, in securing the church mission. And also, they are going to make the king abide by the charter rights. In other words, the king cannot start issuing executive orders, let's put it that way, that overrule um, the, the charter rights of all the different portions of the land that form that kingdom. He is, uh, he is actually the guarantor. So for those two reasons, you know, and if you look back in history, the traditional Catholic monarchy has been the, the longest system to break down. Once it was break down and destroyed, then Christendom was over, right? Wow. Um, so that's that's what uh, monarchy, I would say, is the best reference in 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 in, in stopping t uh, tyranny. The question is, why did Carlists never give up? Well, I wish I knew <laughs> that that is just I can offer a speculative answer on this. But I will say uh, the simplest answer would be because God wants it. You know, I mean, th this is what it is. Carlism defends the, uh, the political structures of Christendom. Car Carlism is considered like a minor Christianitas in the sense that um, what they propose is what was in place uh, during Christendom. And um, for some reason, uh, God wants that to be uh, still to this day existing and, uh, and being a reference to Catholics anywhere in the world so they can have a like a like a visual and a virtual and an intellectual reference to how Christendom was built and how it can be defended. Um, maybe, you know, we can talk a little bit about um, the responsibility that we Christians, we have. Uh, since we pray, for example, the Lord's Prayer, you know, the Our Father, is thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, it, it, it seems that there is some, some sort of duty that we have to make that happen. Okay. And, and that indeed happened historically with Christendom. And, you know, um, there is some theology of the war involved on this for Christians. You know, the, 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 the decisive battle 
it's not about Carlism. It's about, uh, you know, the Holy Trinity and the devil, you know, Christ or Satan, the city of God or the city of man, you know. So every time on earth, the blood of martyrs is shed. And of course, Christianity wins. The same way, you know, if you remember the movie, uh, you know, The Passion of Mel Gibson, do you remember towards the end when, you know, the the our Lord is crucified and then the devil is kind of like rejoicing, but then the next moment, then kind of like the, the, the camera is, is like having this big uh, kind of like background scene from on top. And then the devil is kind of like screaming in, in, in anger because he realized that he has uh, worked towards the, the redemption of humankind. Like the crucifixion actually is the redemption of humankind, you know? The, the devil was so happy that, you know, uh, I'm killing the son of man and we are crucifying him. And he didn't realize that by that bare fact, uh, redemption was taking place. So that the, I think that that's historically what happened. You know, we can see when Christians have been persecuted and martyrdom has occurred, uh, and the blood of the martyrs have shed, um, Christendom has have more numbers, has increased, and uh, overtaking kingdoms, overtaking uh, land territories. You know, we can think in the in the in the conversion of the Roman Empire, in, in the conversion of Constantine. In you know, it's, we can think in the 1936 Spanish Crusade. You know, all the persecution that took um, time right after it. And then you know how the the Catholic troops, uh, the Carlists and the national troops, they were able to win that war that nobody thought that they were going to win. So I think that uh, that's 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 some insights right there. Also, uh, it gives us an idea about what's going on in 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 actuality, you know, in the current times. Because what the risk right now and. Maybe that this is just my personal opinion, but I think that the devil is like, he has learned from history and he's like, you know what? Instead of killing them, let's make them apostatize. You know, instead of killing Christians, just let's make them apostatize and leave the faith. And that way, if they die, it's nothing. There is no supernatural value to it, uh, you know, because they are not martyrs. And therefore, you know, we can, you know, um, Keep bringing souls to hell, which is the main objective. Yeah, that was one of the what was the was it AA? I can't remember the, the name of it. Wasn't that the uh, the Mason idea? Of, All right, stop killing these guys, but let's corrupt them. Uh, right. Contact information. How do people well, can, contact- can people reach any Carlist in today's age? Yes, uh, some some people uh, actually uh, reach out directly to the traditional Carly circle uh, in Texas uh, that I'm working with, and many people went also to the newspaper, the digital newspaper La Esperanza, which has all the information about all the different circles, um, traditional Carly circles in the Americas and also in all Spain. Um, There is one new in in the Philippines as well. So they are, that's exciting. You know, they are popping up like like mushrooms and and that's very, very encouraging. Um, Also, uh, people can check the Traditionalist Communion website. Uh, That's the organization that supports uh, and is loyal to Prince Sixtus Henry of Bourbon. 
and that way ensuring that um, all the different levels of Carlism, the dynasty, the noble, the nobility, and the you know the folks like uh, myself, you know, they are all they're all the Carlist families. So we are all coming um, in unity. What is the political organization of the Carlist movement today? There is no obviously as Carlist, there is no party that you go and vote because it's pointless. There is nothing to vote for a Carlist. You know, you don't vote for a king. Um, voting uh, is voting doesn't matter. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally relevant, right? Um, like I said before, you know, the Carlism is ruled by two, two rules, actually, the legitimacy of origin and exercise. And none of them have anything to do with voting. Um, it had to do with recognizing, recognizing who it is or who is not. And um, besides the, that, is the uh, communion traditionalista, traditionalist communion, the organization that actually uh, runs um, Carlism to this day. And before anybody gets upset, if voting mattered, they ban it, if you haven't noticed what happened last year. Uh, <laughs> how'd that work out? Uh, is the Spanish hey, Vox hey, Party... Hey, Steve. Steve, before I, before I cut to that one, I have a quote that I got for you. Um, let me read because I think you are, you are gonna you're gonna enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> let me see. I have, it was from Pope Pius XI. Um, look at this. I read it for you. To allow the masses invariably uninformed and impulsive to make decisions on the most serious matters. Is this not to hand oneself over the chance and deliberately run towards the abyss? Uh -huh. Yes, it would be more appropriate to call universal suffrage universal madness. And when the secret societies have taken control of it, as is all too often the case, universal falsehood. This is from Pope Pius IX in the statement to French pilgrims in 1874. Yeah, that doesn't have anything to do with us today, yeah. Only trying to get sixty-year-olds <laughs> no, 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 by, no, by any chance. I want to turn this into my, my uh, clown planet news <laughs> show, but uh, yeah, they're doing six. They're trying to get sixteen-year-olds to vote now. Anyways, so yes, last yes. question: Is the yes. Spanish Vox Party part of the Carlos cause? Okay, um, no, not at all. Um, apparently, some some uh, Catholics, uh, good Catholics, they they felt. Um, attracted to this uh, political party in, in Spain that kind of like uh, tries to cluster conservatives um, all over the all over the nation. Uh, but the reality is that as we talk uh, in the previous podcast about uh, the different cars in the highway of liberalism, you have the conservative car and the progressivist car. Vox is a, a group that uh, belongs to the conservative car, and they are actually loyal to the um, current um, dynasty that is usurping the throne of Spain, and they are loyal to the constitution of Spain, which is liberal in its essence, and therefore they had nothing to do with, with Carlism, with the understanding that Carlism has of Spain, of the kingdom of Spain, of the kingdom of of the Spains in plural, because you know we shouldn't forget that Spain is not 
just uh, the, the the kingdoms in the peninsula, but also you know the, the the rest of the of the land that served the same king and the same religion for centuries. And I'm referring obviously to the Philippines and uh, the West Indies and America and the Americas. So, the motto. Can we dig into the motto of the Carlist movement a little bit more? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, the Carlist motto we said is is divided into four parts, four concepts, four principles: um, God, Fatherland, Charter Rights, and Kin. You know, God, Carlism invokes God to affirm its theocentric view of the world and of life in the strictest fidelity to the age-old teachings of the Church of St. Peter, okay, whose mission it adopts as its own. The fundamental basis upon which the Spains were built was its religion, Catholic, Apostolic, Roman, together with the unity and juridical consequences with which it was traditionally loved and served in our realms. We can, you know, I like to quote here uh, Pope Leo XIII. Uh, he he actually says that his empire, empire of Christ, includes not only Catholic nations, not only baptized baptized persons, who through the the right belonging to the Church have been led astray by error or have been cut off from her by schism, but also all those who are outside of the Christian faith, so that truly the whole of mankind is subject to the power of Jesus Christ. Nor is there any difference in this matter between the individual and the family or the state. For all men, whether collectively or individually, are under the dominion of Christ. In him is the salvation of the individual. In him is the salvation of society. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. This sums up... Uh, the 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 word the god concept for carlism in the carlist motto because that's what carlism tries to do is uh, bring that salvation to humankind and give that political structure that will protect uh and ensure that god's laws and principles are uh fully functioning in society okay then we have uh, you know fatherland for Fatherland, I would like to actually talk about St. Thomas Aquinas. You know, he, he mentioned how we have to defend our, our patria, right, our, our, our nation, as a way to actually um, uh, be respectful with the fourth commandment, as we honor our parents, you know. Uh, it's very easy to see this in, in the Latin words, you know, because you have the word nation in the Latin is patria, that comes from pater, that comes from, which is father. You know, so we, we we have the father as the head of the household. Uh, the father of the fathers will be the king, and the king of kings is our Lord Jesus Christ. So this hierarchical structure is what creates uh, that sense of fatherland. You know, God has put you in a specific portion of land, and and that is that land uh, gains an identity. Mm -hmm. um, and that identity needs to be defended and protected. So that's where the, the concept of uh, fatherland comes that, again, has nothing to do with nation or with the modern concept of nation or the modern notion of a state. Um, is, 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 is different. Okay, Carlism invokes the fatherland to signify its support for a traditional and historical federalism 
based on the Tridentine idea of concrete and fallen man. You know, man is not an, an abstract. Man is concrete in a specific time and space, and, and is a fallen man because of original sin. So all those things, they need to be taken into account. Fatherland represents the historical federation of the different kingdoms and their privileges. That's charter rights. Um, I'll explain later. And liberties, integrating the unity of the Spanish fatherland. Modern parlance uh, uses the word nation to refer to peoples, defining the nation according to physical traits or as manifestations of the will. You know, geography, race, language, uh, the plebiscite habitually renew, uh, whatever, you know. Tradition, on the other hand, defines people as accumulate history taking the aforementioned physical traits into account only to the degree that they have had an effect on people's historical trajectory, but never as relevant in themselves directly and exclusively. That's what Carlism condemns, for example, nationalism, because nationalism it can be based on, on race, for example, you know, and race is the, the, the defining concept for that nation. Uh, and no, it may have played a part, but it, it cannot be. It cannot be. In Spain, what it was is the unity of the faith. That's the key concept that provides that unity of the fatherland, the faith, the Catholic faith. And this actually what distinguishes, for example, Catholic nations like France before the French Revolution, where obviously the Catholic religion was a, a, a key component of, of, of that particular society. But in Spain, it's different because it's the Catholic religion what made all those different kingdoms to connect and to unite. You know, Navarra, Aragon, Castilla, Valencia, etc. All of those kingdoms, they have in common the faith and defending the faith for the, you know, the, the Muslims in this case, okay. um, historically, but in the modern times, liberalism. So that's uh, in regards to fatherland. Um, now, a lot of people actually uh, ask me about charter rights. And, uh, you know, with charter rights, what happened is that it's not an equivalent word to fueros. You know, the word is fueros. But charter rights, privileges, are English words that kind of like clo get closer in, 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 in meaning, but it's not exactly the same thing. Um, it's like English common law. English common law will be very similar to uh, charter rights, but there is a difference. And I, and I want to um, explain that a little bit more, okay? Um, the Spanish word fuero comes from the Latin forum, uh, the name of the place where justice was administered. And it later came to refer to the body of uh, presidents issued by the courts. Afterwards, following the universal rule by which the law is formed, it came to denote the body of laws belonging exclusively to a city or a state. It finally came to have the meaning of the body of peculiar laws by which each of the Spanish people are ruled. So privileges, I'm going to say privileges for those charter rights, they, implying, they are implying the following thesis. First, that man is a concrete being and not an abstract entity as the revolution holds. Um, also that liberties, that is each man circle of activities according to circumstances are framed in the case of a specific people within the juridic, juridical and social canons resulting from their particular tradition. 
and become incarnate in norms created by privilege, not in the laws the revolution delights in dictating. That also in the opposition, liberty versus equality, uh, that eats away at the heart of the revolutionary thought. It is necessary to affirm the primacy of liberty, you know, the uh, fueros is a system of concrete liberties of the different uh, Hispanic traditions and preferable to the abstract liberty of the revolution. You know, the revolution is always abstract. Freedom for, for everyone, everyone equal, everyone free. Yeah, but what that means at the end, you know, because it's not the same the guy from Tennessee than the guy from Idaho or the guy in Seattle to the guy in Miami. So what that means, actually, that's the that's the the meat and potatoes. So charter rights are totally different from one kingdom to another mm -hmm. because they have different needs. They have, uh, you know, different demands. So Carlisem understands man as an, as an integral being, born in a terrestrial setting, but projected into an existent beyond it. So Carlisem knows that man is not born as the animals are just to devour food, uh, to eat food, or to win victory in the violent struggle, but to attain a paradise above and to edify here below the terrestrial city through the continuation of a concrete historical lineage. It sees society as vertically ordered in accordance with moral and material interest, not horizontally, into one or many political parties, you know? Carlisem affirms that political philosophy must begin from the concrete man of tradition, not the abstract man of the revolution. So the mission of politics, that's related to the charter rights, is not to define unreliable, unreliable you know, abstractions, but to make it possible for each man to exercise his liberty in the election of his transcendent destiny. So that his free nature develops in a way that is not harmful to himself or to the social order of which he and his neighbors are a part. Um, that man has the condition of a concrete being capable of using only concrete political liberties. That's the concept behind the charter rights. You know, Carlisen defends the historical reality of privileges, a system of concrete political liberties. Privileges express the liberties that have grown organically through the ripening of the past into the historical present. They therefore possess none of the characteristics of the liberty of the European Revolution. They are not a prioristic or abstract, for they spring from the living tradition fashioned by precise historical actions. They are not mechanical guarantees defended by political checks and balances of power or by equilibria or pressure groups in each sociological circumstance. Privileges, fueros, are the deep expression of the vitality, vitality of the mystical social body, the society, um, which remains robust as long as it possesses its own energies and does not fall into the, on the one, anemia of liberal individualism or into the coma of a state totalitarianism, you know. Um, that's, that's, I think that, 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 that sums up very good um, what are the charter rights. Um, you know, is that concrete um, protection of the liberties of, of men, you know, and, and its form, it can be formed by, or it was formed um, by two things, use, and custom. 
the difference between the two is that use um, was law that was written and, uh, uh, and approved, and custom is an unwritten law. Mm -hmm. So both things are what actually actually constitute uh, the fuero, the charter rights. After a long process of negotiating between all the people involved, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now it's also interesting to notice that um, the people involved in making those charter rights is not individuals. Is the is that are the families, better say the head of the families, that they belong organically to some kind of either the guild or the you know the the the, the people that are in the nobility or um, the clergy. All these different groups organically are involved into negotiating and creating uh, these these foros. But once it's done, this is first rank law, and the king abides to it. I mean, he swears to be the protector and the warrantor of these rights. All right. So you guys had a, was it a ceremony or fee, kind of a feast day in your in the movement, a feast of martyr, martyrs? Is that true? Correct. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, actually, Steve, it was this past Wednesday is um, every March the 10th and is the feast of the martyrs of tradition. Okay, and um, it's a feast that was instituted by the king, uh, Charles the Seventh, Charles Bourbon the um, Seventh, which um, and actually have the test uh, and the things that he said. But basically, he he was realizing that look, um, we are at the end. I mean, we just finished the Third Carlist War. Uh, think look back and think about all the families and all the people that have died uh have given their life uh, their lives for god for fatherland and you know that we don't even know you know i mean we are talking about thousands and thousands of people and they don't have anyone you know that is kind of like remembering them so uh, actually the king is the one that instituted the feast, but it was kind of like a petition from some of the, the nobility and, and other Carlist uh, families uh, highlighting the Marquess of Cerralbo, which is the one that passed this proposal, proposal to uh, to the king. And yeah, uh, he decided to do it this March 10th. And basically, what it does is, is you go to mass and then... Um, you visit a cemetery, uh, you know, in, in remembrance, and you pray for for all the fallen, for for God and country, fatherland, and and then you pray the rosary with very specific intentions. It's mystery. Uh, in this case, it falls in, in a Wednesday, so we are talking about the glorious mysteries, and I have the intentions here. So for the first mystery the resurrection of our Lord, uh, I was to ask the intercession of Our Lady for all the fallen in the first Carlist War in 1834. 18, uh, then the second mystery, the extension of the Lord, uh, we ask the intercession of the, our Immaculate Conception, uh, which, who is the patron saint of Spain and also the Requete troops, the Carlist troops, uh, for the second and the third Carlist Wars that end up in uh, 1876. Then you have the third um mystery the descent of the holy ghost then again is the immaculate heart of mary for the 1926 uh, martyrs of the christiada and from the for the 1936 uh spanish crusade martyrs martyrs you have the fourth 
Uh, then we ask the intercession of Our Lady of Guadalupe for the repose of the souls of all those that shed blood glorifying Christ the King, defending tradition in New Spain. So this is more for the Americas. And then the fifth one, uh, the coronation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we ask through the intercession of Our Lady of Pilar, uh, based in Zaragoza. Uh, I don't know if you know the story about the Virgin of Pilar. It's very interesting. Uh -huh. If you um, want to talk, you know, tell it, was, it, you go for it. But uh, yeah, I've heard of it. You know, it was bomb during the Spanish Civil War. It was bomb, and the bombs, boom, they penetrate the, the basilica. Didn't explode. Isn't there I one? I that when I was very little, and they still have the, the, the bomb, I mean, the, the bombs there, you know. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask, isn't there one hanging from the ceiling? Uh, the ball, I think that that one was removed and they put a replica. But the uh, one that I saw is the one that actually crashed into the ground. And, and, and half of it. And, and it was there, you know. And nothing. You know, that's a, a miracle right there. Um, you know, that, that basilica was made in, uh, by St. James in honor of Our Lady. Uh -huh. Because he was getting desperate that he couldn't convert the Spaniards. They were so uh, stubborn. So hard-headed, you know, and he was like, I'm going to live here. And, uh, you know, that he had this apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary telling him, like, be patient because in the future, the, the, this place that you are now is going to give great honor to me and, and, and to our Lord Jesus Christ defending the faith. Boom. Isn't that what happened? What are some names? Uh, well, who are some of the more... I say famous or well known of these martyrs of tradition. Well, um, man, I can I can tell you the families that were very known. Um, I mean, those are very concrete uh, names. You know, is the Ojo family, the Ulibarri family, the okay. Frances family, and, and the Chaga. Very vast families. Okay, uh, but at the end of the day, it's not if if these people were important at that time or not is that the whole of society was involved in, in these wars. The whole of society. You have the clergy, especially the Jesuits, um, but I would say, you know, 90% 90, 90 of the clergy was Carlist. I'm talking from uh, the first Carlist war. But then, uh, you know, the common, the common of the people, you know, the common people. And that's the reason why the first Carlist war lasts so long, seven years. You, know, you have to think about the liberal army. They have the, the support of the of the uh, English army. They have the support of the Portuguese army. They have the support of uh, even the French army at that time, liberal. And they still, they couldn't uh, subject, you know, the, the Carlist movement. Huh. To the point that in the Third Carlist War, is actually the, the Carlist king ruled Spain. Half of Spain. He he was actually the king, and he coined, um, uh, you know, like like coins, you know, uh, with his image and uh, God, Fatherland, Charter Rights, and King. Or no, in this case, it was just God, Fatherland, and King, because Charter Rights was already understood as part of Fatherland, of the understanding of of Fatherland. So you gave yeah. me a yeah. video to play at the end. We'll play it at the end of this one for everyone watching. If you're hearing it, you'll just hear it. But can you uh, give us a little background of it? Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's actually a funny story because this, um, the Oira Mendi, this anthem, was a music piece of the liberal army. Oh. 
but in a in a in a in a struggle in a battle that took place in the in the Basque provinces, um, the Carlists won that battle. They took over all their belongings and they found this melody. They found the you know the the the, the letters of the you know the, of the of the music and the song. And what they did is they changed it to give it um, a Carlist meaning to it, and and it became the Carlist uh, anthem. Where they glorify God and, uh, and you know and, and and the you know the 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 tradition the traditional laws and fatherland and all of this so and it became very popular and, and to this day I mean it's always motive of celebration uh, anywhere uh, that there is Carlist uh, Carlism that people sing the Oiramendi. Now there are different versions. You have the one that is the original version in Basque. Uh, then it was translated to Castilian, uh, to Spanish, and then uh, you'll appreciate this. It was changed after Franco's victory, because the first part of the uh, your viewers will see it uh, in the in the translation, the subtitles. But the the original one it says that we are gonna fight and we are gonna struggle and do whatever it takes to bring the true king to Spain, you know, to the course of Spain, to Madrid. During Franco's time, they changed that to the bringing the king, bringing the true king to Spain for uh, the red berets will march through Madrid. No reference to the king, you know, because again, you know, we probably we should do a podcast on this um, more in depth. But, um, you know, Franco was not friend of the Carlist and, uh, and and he he actually oppressed uh, the Carlism uh you know, especially in the 60s and the and the 70s, and he suppressed them as much as he could. Um, as as soon as he realized that he couldn't have them in the movement, in the Francoist movement, then uh, they were suppressed. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, those are the interesting facts. And we're, uh, people were asking how to contact you. Uh, they didn't hear the email address. So before you go, can you go ahead? How did how somebody find out more information? There's the website. It was an email address. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, uh, again, go to La Esperanza. But if you want to contact me directly, you can go to um, AmericanRequete78 at gmail.com. Can you spell that for uh, them? American. Yes, uh, absolutely. A M E. R I C A N American R E Q U E T E Requete, which is Carly Soldier, 78 at gmail.com. So, no, you hate mail, Eduardo. Yes. <laughs> yes. Any question they have, send it to him so that he doesn't have to scroll through all the comments in the videos to find them again. But uh, I'm sure that wasn't absolutely, a bad absolutely. thing. But yeah, it's easier to do email. But uh, Eduardo, appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll do another one on Franco if you want to do that or anything else on the topic. Absolutely, Steve. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. You're very welcome. Here comes the video. All right. Thank you. 